1 Peter chapter 1, as you're turning there this morning. And we closed with this great thought last week. In 1 Peter chapter 1, and the last four words of verse 7, really the, the thought that we closed on last week at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. This is really something that is obviously on Peter's mind. He uses the exact same phrase again down in verse 13 when he talks about that will be brought to you. Set your mind fully or your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's thinking about that day when when Jesus Christ is is revealed. And I, I don't need to tell you, but I will, that friends, there is coming a day. There is coming a great day when the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed and we will see Him in all of His perfect glory. And just like the hymn says, what a day, what a glorious day that will be. When, when my Jesus I shall see, when I look upon His face, the One who saved me by His grace, when He takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land, what a day, what a glorious day that will be. There is coming a day, praise the Lord, when our faith will be sight. Our faith will be sight. The clouds will be rolled back and, and the Lord will, Himself will descend with the trumpet of God and the voice of God Himself. That day we will see Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the blessed hope, isn't it? That's the blessed hope of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what the Scripture says is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ for the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed we will be caught up to meet the Lord together in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. That day is coming, and you all not forget it. We are looking forward to that day with great anticipation, the day of the revelation of Jesus Christ. While Peter is thinking about that, he's also not denying the reality that we endure present trials. And last week, we found Peter providing us with a, a divine perspective on trials, giving us the, the divine purpose for trials and, and helping us understand the divine product of those trials, the, the day when we'll receive the glory and the praise and the honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. But you got this tension going on in this first chapter. You can feel it. One moment he's sounding that note of revelation of Jesus Christ, and the next moment he's sounding the note of the reality of present trials. Our present trials, we endure these present trials, and they serve to remind us that we're not there yet. They serve to remind us that we do not see the face of Jesus Christ right now. That's why when you experience a particularly grievous trial, it makes the maturing Christian long for glory, doesn't it? We just long for glory. When, when there's that tension when we experience, that we experience as Christians when we face trials and yet realize that there is coming a day. Which brings a question before us that I want to try to address this morning. And that is, 
do I have to wait to have real, unmitigated joy until I see Jesus face to face? Do you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, have to wait to experience genuine joy until that day when we see Christ face to face? Maybe you came in here this morning and you have been battered about by various difficulties in your life and you're thinking, my goodness, it didn't take long for me to get discouraged or down about that. Or maybe you're on the ground looking up in the midst of life's trials, very real, very heavy, present distress, grievous affliction that you're experiencing right now. And we've been addressing the question, why is it that you're called as a suffering saint to deal with those present trials? Maybe you're in the midst of a present affliction right now. Maybe you're in the midst of your body hurting right now. Maybe you're experiencing the various kinds of heartache and heartbreak that you know that you can experience. I'm speaking today to someone who knows the present trials of physical pain. I'm speaking to someone today who knows the real distress of emotional anguish. You're facing the onslaught of a vicious disease that is eating your body away moment by moment. Maybe you're realizing the heartache and heartbreak of a broken marriage. Maybe you're here this morning and you're still aching. You're still sore from some spiritual defeat. You find yourself reeling from the fresh wounds of, a, of giving into some temptation just recently. Maybe you're encountering some kind of opposition because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon said this, The steps by which we ascend to the place of joy are usually moist with tears. Amid the ashes of our pain lie the sparks of our joy, ready to flame up when breathed on by the Holy Spirit. Do these things mean that you and I have to wait to experience real joy? Well, this morning, we're just slowly working through the book of 1 Peter, and we're going to come to our text this morning, which is verses 8 and 9. We're really taking a big chunk now this morning, right? Two verses this morning. And we're going to make three statements that will help us to understand that, that, that as a Christian, you have a very real joy in the present time, even though you may be battered by life's trials. That's what I want to show you. You have, a, as a Christian, you have a very present joy, even though you may be battered by life's trials. Look at the text in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Three statements I want to make this morning. First, the Christian hasn't seen Christ, yet loves him. The Christian hasn't seen Christ, yet loves him. Second, the Christian doesn't see Christ, yet trusts Him. I, I, I don't know if I said that backwards. The Christian hasn't seen Christ, yet loves Him. The Christian doesn't see Christ, yet trusts Him. And then third, the Christian rejoices, even if not seeing Christ. The Christian hasn't seen Christ, yet loves Him. 
The Christian doesn't see Christ, yet trusts Him. And the Christian rejoices, even if not seeing Christ. And I hope that you'll see these things already clearly in the text before you, but let's just kind of walk through the text and seek to understand it together. The Christian, statement number one, hasn't seen Christ, yet loves Him. Though you have not, you, this is past tense, you have not seen Him, you love Him. Perhaps Peter's drawing a little bit on his own experience because he himself has seen Christ and he having seen Christ loves Christ. He confessed that in John chapter 21. But now he's drawing this, this, this uh, difference between he and them. They have not seen Christ and yet they love Him. You know that throughout the Scriptures, love is incredibly important. Love, in fact, we might say love for God is incredibly important. Love for Christ is paramount among the characteristics of a Christian. Love may well be considered to be the defining characteristic of a Christian. So let's think a little bit about the importance of love this morning. Love for Christ is paramount among the characteristics of a Christian. These people had not seen Christ's earthly ministry. I want you to think about exactly what that means practically. They had not witnessed his great care and tenderness toward the sick and the afflicted. They did not see him heal the woman with the issue of blood. They did not hear his compassionate words of life. They did not see his miracles They didn't witness his sacrificial death on the cross. Peter in his second epistle is going to talk about, you know, you've never seen what I've seen. You did not see Christ in all of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. They didn't witness his sacrificial death on the cross. They didn't witness him rising from the dead. They did not see him ascending to heaven. Which gives me pause to say this. There is such a misunderstood truth in the church today under the influence of Pentecostalism, that has led many to think that unless they see Jesus, or unless they see some manifestation of Jesus, that they really can't love Him. So you have all kinds of things that have become handmaids to, the, to false teaching. You might consider the book, Heaven is for Real, purported to be written by a four-year-old who had a vision of heaven, who came back to tell us that heaven is in fact for real. But that just smacks against the teaching of Jesus in Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus. Let me just read this to you. Just listen. He talked about this rich man who was in Hades. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus, the poor man, at his side. And he, the rich man, called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, he says, between us and you, there is a great chasm which has been fixed in order that no one would pass from here to you and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father. To send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, 
they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And the rich man said, no, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Can you love Jesus even in the midst of what appears to be an unending trial? Can you love Jesus even in the midst of that unending trial where you don't even see him and you've never seen him? Do you need a miracle to trust Jesus, to love Jesus? You remember what happened in Daniel chapter 3? Nebuchadnezzar had those three Hebrew young boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he had them, he told them he was going to throw them into the fiery furnace unless they turned around and, and worshipped him. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. He, they said, because God is God and he is able to deliver us. And then they said, but even if not, we'll not bow down before you. That even if not, gets at the heart of what Peter is saying here in 1 Peter chapter 1. Just because someone sees something miraculous does not mean they're going to believe. And when we come to 1 Peter chapter 1, we understand that we love Christ not because of what we see. We believe that heaven is real not because a four-year-old said it, but because the Bible says it. We believe when we have not seen. And the same goes for miraculous signs and wonders. They have not seen him, but they love him nonetheless. And friends, that is a Christian. Christians love Jesus. In fact, we can say this. Christians have a love for Christ even though they haven't seen him. Love for Christ is a distinguishing mark of a Christian. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 as we're just looking now at the the importance of, of love. I want you to see the strong words with which the Apostle Paul addresses this issue of love. Love particularly for Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he's closing out his letter and in verse 22 he says this. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be condemned to the fire of hell. That's how important love for Christ is. I don't know exactly what Peter is doing here in 1 Peter chapter 1 because you might look at that and you might hear him say, even though you've not seen him, you love him and, and you might maybe think, is that, is that making it difficult for them? Are they, is he questioning their love for them? No, he's actually speaking in the indicative. He's speaking about something that is true about them. I think what Peter is trying to do in 1 Peter chapter 1, is he is wanting to encourage these scattered, suffering saints that they, in fact, love the Lord Jesus Christ, which is to say that they, in fact, are not condemned. 
the importance of love. But then would you consider with me the implications of love? Back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, though you have not seen him, yet you love him. Now that word love is the verb agapao, which is a form of the word you probably heard before, agape. It describes the love, the best I can explain it is it describes the love of the will. It is the love with which a Christian submits to God. That's a Christian. A Christian loves Christ, which is to say a Christian has submitted his or her will to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here I have a question for you. How does Peter know that? How does Peter know that they love Jesus Christ even though they haven't seen him? Now you know that there are many evidences of love. John tells us in John chapter 14 and in 1 John, the whole book of 1 John, that one of the evidences of love is that you love the brothers. Jesus reminds us in John 14 and uh, 15 and 21 and 24, he tells us that one of the distinguishing marks of love for Christ is that you obey Christ, you obey his commandments. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments keeps them. He it is who loves me. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And so maybe he's talking about, he's, he's understood something about their love for the brothers. Maybe he's thinking about their, their obedience to the commands of Christ. But I'll tell you, perhaps the greatest way to know whether or not you have love for Jesus Christ, and this is what I think was in Peter's mind, they had suffered They had suffered. They have gone through trial after trial and still they followed Christ. I'm sure it wasn't a perfect following of Christ as Peter could well attest in his own life. But they kept with him. They stayed. They didn't stray. The only thing, listen, the only thing that will keep you from turning away from Christ in the midst of life's greatest trials is your love for him. Those trials, what those trials serve to do is they serve to cement and evidence love for Christ even though you haven't seen him. Your perseverance in loving Jesus. Listen, and when I say loving Jesus, I'm not talking about some mushy, ushy, gushy kind of butterflies in the stomach kind of feeling. I'm referring to love that submits, that yields the will to Christ That persevering in love is what demonstrates the genuineness of your relationship to Jesus Christ. That's why trials are absolutely essential in the life of the Christian. Those trials serve to push you toward Christ. It shows that you are a genuine Christian. So, we're saying here, as we think about the implications of love, The Christian hasn't seen Christ yet loves Him. Love defined as a a yielding of the will to Christ even after, even in the midst of fiery trials. So someone might be saying, wait a minute. What about all those warning passages in the Bible? Those warning passages like this. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, 
you are truly my disciples. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch. The one who endures to the end will be saved. He will render to each one according to his works. Paul said, otherwise you too will be cut off. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. If indeed we hold fast to our confidence. If we hold to our original confidence to the end. In other words, you might be asking, what about those warning passages that are saying, if, 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 if. How do I understand those as a Christian? As a true Christian who loves Christ, though having never seen Him, these warning passages are not really warnings. They're promises. Right? Remember, you used to say, is that a threat? Or somebody said, no, that's a promise. This is not a threat from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a promise. Those who endure to the end are the ones who are genuine Christians. And so you go through these trials the trials that would normally knock you off course and take you away from Christ. And and when I get back from Uganda, we're going to take a week just to talk about the anatomy of a a trial, the, 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 the way we look at a temptation. But listen, those trials that would normally knock you off course and you find yourself saying, look, I might be a bit battered. I might be on my back looking up, but I am looking up. I am trusting Christ. I love Him. That's a mark of a Christian. That's a mark of a Christian. I told you last week, when somebody is doubting their, their faith, when somebody is lacking assurance, I will usually tell them, then go, go away from Christ, depart from Him, leave, go sin your fill, go, go. And they say, but I can't. Why can't you? Because I do love Him. That's exactly right. You may not love him perfectly, but you love him nonetheless. The importance of love. The implications of love. And let me give you an incentive to love. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Why? (laughs) What is it it that motivates? What, What is the incentive to love the Lord Jesus Christ? Why would you submit your will to him? Well, I want to remind you what John told us in 1 John 4. We love because He first loved us. When you're a Christian, my friend, you realize, and increasingly so, you realize the gravity of what Jesus did for you. You realize that you are a sinner before a holy God. And you increasingly understand that you have violated His law and that you justly deserve the wrath of God. Yet you come to understand, again, and increasingly so, that in His incredible love and mercy, Jesus, being in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking on the form of a slave and gave Himself up to the point of death, even death on the cross. When when you are a Christian, you submit your will at the feet of such love and holiness even though you haven't visibly seen Him. And this is much more than a callous and cold, unmoved love. Because listen, friends, Christians are not loving a principle 
Christians are not loving an, idea, uh, an ideology. Christians are not loving even a theology. Christians are not loving a doctrine, but they are loving a person. Do you see that? Him having not seen, you love. If you love a theology without loving Christ, you're not in Christ. You love Him, not a force, not an idea, not a doctrine but a real historical person. When you see that person left heaven's glory and took on human flesh and willingly faced the wrath of God and and took it on himself, he became your substitute to pay for your sin, not his. And then you understand that he died and that he was buried. And you grasp that three days later he rose again in demonstration of the fact that he is divine. That's when you find the inclination, even if it's a small one, the inclination, the spark of a fire to love the Lord Jesus Christ because you realize, listen, Paul said in Romans 5, the Holy Spirit lavishes his love upon us, brings us to understand the extent to which Christ went for us. And that incentivizes, that is the incentive for you to love him. You love him because of what he's done. Now maybe you're cut to the heart right now. Maybe, maybe you, you're convinced that you do not love Christ, at least in this way. And what could be happening here? Well, what could be happening here if you in your heart feel that, I don't love Jesus, I just don't. What could be happening is that God could be using this verse to help you see the all-abounding nature of the loveliness of Christ and bring you to love Him. Or maybe you're sitting here and you say, I I am a Christian, but you're seeing all of the imperfections of your love. Maybe God is convicting you of some some sin. Maybe, maybe God is showing you this morning that you've been holding on to something other than Christ or something more than Christ, loving something or someone more than Jesus, some way in which you are idolizing those things or people. And He is bringing you to understand. And maybe, maybe those trials that you're enduring are to burn up all the chaff of everything that's not really important leaving only that which is, and that's Christ. Christians haven't seen Christ, yet they love Him. Being that that's true, the second statement is also true. The Christian doesn't see Christ. This is present tense. He doesn't see Christ, but trusts Him. The Christian doesn't see Christ now, yet trusts Him. Look back again in First Peter chapter 1. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. You believe. That's The word believe here is the word that we would just use. We would maybe just translate faith. I want you to think about what the definition of faith is. What is faith? Now, this really seems to be connected to the main verb. The main verb in this text is the word love. In other words, you've got to be careful not to separate love and trust. It's not a possible to say, well, I love him, I don't trust him. 
Neither is it possible to say, I trust him and I don't love him. Perhaps the most significant way that your love for Christ is established, both established and elevated, is through trust. Now, if you're interested in grammar, this word is actually a participle, which kind of shows you it's describing the verb. Love him. Love him as a believer. That's what he's saying. Love him as one who is believing in Christ, one who is trusting in Christ. They love Jesus despite never having seen him, and they believe in him right now, even though they don't see him right now. Faith is essential throughout the scriptures. You know that, right? He says in verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is what? The salvation of your soul. For by grace you are saved through faith. Paul talks about the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. He says in Romans 5, we are justified by faith. Now what's interesting is, in this passage, faith is is described as not seeing him now. Peter makes it clear that saving faith is believing and loving a Jesus whom we have not seen and do not see. It is trusting Jesus whose death on the cross we've never seen, whose resurrection we did not witness, whose face we do not see presently. And this gets at the heart of defining saving faith because you remember how the author of Hebrews defined faith? Faith, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of, of things what? Not seen. Saving faith is faith in the truth of what we have not seen. Which is why we don't ask God for signs and visions and proofs. People pray this all the time. God, if you're real, show me. Give me a sign and so forth. But we need to understand that that is exactly the opposite of what God calls saving faith. Faith's definition But let me show you faith's foundation. Would you turn with me to John chapter 17 for a moment? John chapter 17. In this great high priestly prayer of Jesus, in verse 20, there's a tremendously valuable nugget of truth that I just want you to see. So we think about what is the foundation for faith. John chapter 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, these disciples who are with him there, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. What is the catalyst for believing? What is the catalyst for faith? It is the word The apostolic word, we can say the word of God, the Bible. Flip over to John chapter 20. John chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31. John chapter 20 verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The foundation of faith, my friends, is the Word of God. Faith 
is impossible apart from the Word of God. If God did not speak, you could not believe. Listen, just a pet peeve of mine. We are not people of faith. Are you a person of faith? Because our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is in a person. A Christian is someone who believes in Jesus. We're not people of faith as if faith were the be-all, end-all. Faith, walk, faith, life, faith, faith, faith. No, it's Christ. We're people of Christ. And we relate to him. We join to him by faith. We trust his word. That's the foundation for faith. It's the word of God. Definition is trusting him even when you don't see him. Confident in him even when you don't see him. Convicted in him even when you don't see him. Faith's foundation is the word of God. God speaking, therefore we believe. And at the heart of saving faith, it involves both a reliance and an unreserved resignation. Faith involves reliance on him with no strings attached. I'll trust you if. I'll trust you when. Unreserved resignation. And you see how that fits hand in glove? With genuine love for Christ? Because love is not about some ushy-gushy, mushy, butterfly in the stomach thing. Love is about submitting your will to Him. No matter come what may. The Christian hasn't seen Christ, yet loves Him. The Christian doesn't see Christ, yet trusts Him. And then, back to 1 Peter chapter 1, the Christian rejoices even if not seeing Christ. Having said all that he has said, look at this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and or even rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The Christian rejoices even though he's not seeing Christ. This joy, it's interesting. To rejoice, that word rejoice describes someone who's kicking up their heels. It's like the, I don't know if you remember when maybe when you were a kid and, and maybe you've seen the farmer who had animals and after a long winter they put the animals out from the barn to the pasture and those, they would just go out there and kick up their heels. You think, man, that, that's heavy. he's just so filled with joy. It's that kind of rejoicing, just leaping with joy is what he's saying. The Christian leaps with joy, rejoices with joy. What is this joy? Well, he calls it an inexpressible joy. It is an unutterable joy. The joy of the Christian, in other words, is a joy that cannot be accurately described by words. There there are no words to describe the joy. It doesn't make sense. And Peter's going to draw on this later when he talks about those Christians who've suffered 
And yet there are people who come up to those suffering Christians who ask them what? The reason for the hope that is in them. It's joy. This is an unutterable joy. It's similar to the peace that Paul spoke of in Philippians 4 where he spoke of the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. The word that Peter uses here is only occurring this time. It's the only place it occurs in the New Testament. It seems to be a word that is associated with astonishment that just leaves people with their mouths agape, astonished in wonder. They're just speechless. It's an unalterable, unutterable joy. You can't put words to it. It's not some prayer language or some secret language that you have with God. It's just speechless joy. Not only is it unutterable, but it is an unearthly joy because you see where he says, and full of glory. That's just one word in the original language. It refers to that which is glorified. Literally, it's referring to a joy that is a glorified joy, a joy that is otherworldly. It is so otherworldly that it can only be described as a heavenly joy, if you will. This is a joy that is rooted in heaven. It is a glorified joy. Joy. The Christian rejoices even if not seeing Christ. So we're trying to answer the question do I have to wait to have real, unmitigated joy until that day when I see Jesus? Or can I have it right now? And the answer is in verse 9. The answer is in the grammar of verse 9 obtaining. Receiving, taking unto yourself in the present tense, right now. You who love Christ even though you haven't seen Him, you who trust Christ even though you don't see Him, you who rejoice even if you've never seen Christ, you receive right now in the present time the outcome, the goal. Teleos is the word. Think of, think of you know, watching soccer, which I don't know why anybody would, but watching soccer and, and seeing a goal, the, the guy making a goal, and the guy yells, goal, right? Receiving the goal of your, right now. It is through, brothers and sisters, our deep and abiding love for Christ. It is through our trust in Christ that we come to find our greatest joy. And in that joy, we receive, the, even if it's the seed, we receive, even if it's the smallest part, we receive the fullness of that which is reserved for us in heaven, which is unalterable joy and unearthly joy. Well done, good and faithful servant. What? Enter into the joy of your Lord. We can have it now. Even in the midst of trial. There is a right now enjoyment of the salvation of our souls. A right now element to eternal life. It is through these things that we come to understand something about the salvation, the rescue of our souls, that though I experience present trial. It's, it's, it's what we read 
in, in Psalm 118, which quoted in Hebrews chapter 13, when the writer of Hebrews said this, he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? You're going to take away my home? You're going to steal my money? Am I going to lose my health? Am I going to suffer greatly? My family going to be torn asunder? Am I going to experience war and hardship and trial and agony? Yet I will confidently say, you see, that's the right now aspect of that eternal, future eternal life that every Christian has. It's a story told by Ray Pritchard about a woman named Karen Watson in Bakersfield, California. She apparently came to faith in Christ in 1997 after an incredible time of personal grief and affliction. Her fiancé, her father, and her grandmother all died within two years. After coming to Christ, she decided to join others from her local church on short-term mission trips. She went twice to El Salvador, once to Kosovo, Macedonia, and Greece. It didn't take long for her to realize that God was calling her to a more full-time kind of service, so she resigned her job, sold her car and her house, and joined the IMB of the Southern Baptist Convention. She packed all of her worldly belongings in a single duffel bag. It was clear to everyone else that she was a natural leader, and so she was asked to coordinate uh, refugee work in in Jordan during the war in Iraq. Soon after major combat ended, she was assigned to Iraq itself. She was fully aware of the dangers, but she didn't hesitate to go. On March 15, 2003, she and four other missionaries were in northern Iraqi city of Mosul, and they were attacked by a drive-by shooting. The assailants fired automatic weapons and rocket-powered grenades. Four of those missionaries died. Karen, age 38, was one of them. Just before she went into Iraq, she had given a letter to her pastor And she asked him to only open that in the event of her death. And she said, You should only be opening this letter in the event of my death. When God calls, there are no regrets. I I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place, I was called to Him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory was my reward. His glory is my reward. One of the most important things to remember right now is to preserve the work. I'm writing this as if I am still working among my people group. I thank you all so much for your prayers and support. Surely your reward in heaven will be great. Thank you for investing in my life and spiritual well-being. Keep sending missionaries. Keep raising up fine young pastors. In regards to my service, keep it simple and preach the gospel. Give glory and honor to our Father. She quoted a poem, The Missionary Heart. Care more than some think wise. Risk more than some think safe. Dream more than some think practical. 
expect more than some think possible. She said, I was not called to comfort or success, but I was called to obedience. And there is no joy outside of knowing Jesus Christ and serving Him. The funeral that day, Pastor Roger Sprodlin said this, does it pay to serve God when kindness is greeted by a hail of bullets? And then he said, it pays if you value the attention of God more than the approval of men. It pays if you value others more than yourself. If we were to ask Karen, she would say, oh yes. Do you have to wait for joy? Or can you have it right now? Certainly a... a, Joy in greater fullness than we'll ever know here, but but even if it's in seed form. That's why Peter's writing. Can I ask you a question? Do you love Jesus? Do you love Him? I'm not asking, do you have butterflies in your stomach? I'm, I'm asking, do you love Him? Have you submitted your will to Him? Even though you've never seen Him. You say, well, I may not have done that perfectly, but pastor, if you were to give me the the opportunity today to turn away from him, I couldn't do it because I I love him. I might not have done it perfectly, but where else am I going to go? I love him, yes. Do you trust Jesus? Not seeing Jesus now, do you trust him? Have you taken him at his word? Is there a rejoicing in your life in the midst of life's trials? It doesn't mean... Happy-go-lucky, whatever. But a deep and abiding sense of contented joy that comes even in life's greatest trials. Perhaps one of the greatest trials in our life has been what we've gone through with our own family. And our children, some of our, one of our children turning away from Christ. And I was wondering about this week, I thought, can I, can I really love Christ and trust Him even in the midst of that? And it occurred to me, in fact, I wrote this down, that it may very well be that contented joy in Christ that God uses as the greatest testimony for the gospel in the lives of others. What is it? What's your trial? What's your suffering? And what's your joy? Let's pray.